Oh, in the game, yo. Why would we do something like this? Show me the money. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Pathetic. I said pathetic, desperate, pathetic. This is one of you, right? Right, are we talking about a sick guy? Why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? All right, Nathan, let's pop open the trades and uh, see what's in the news this week, shall we? Yeah, welcome uh, to the In Development Podcast. We're going to take a look at the news. Let's do it. All right, first story here per deadline. True TV, otherwise known as the network you only watch during March Madness when they have some early round tournament games on it, uh, has given a 20-episode series order to Hot Ones, the game show, which is based on a hugely popular web talk series hosted by Sean Evans, where he interviews a celebrity as they both eat increasingly spicy hot wings together. Most recently, the show gifted us that Paul Rudd, look at us, hey, look at us meme. Uh, for those that aren't familiar. Um, as part of the deal, True TV has also licensed episodes of the original series and will broadcast an hour of Hot Ones content each week, first an episode of this new game show iteration, and then followed by a new episode of the OG interview show. Um, in the game show version, contestants will be quizzed on pop culture trivia while chowing down on wings slathered in increasingly spicy sauces as their mental and visual skills are tested as they become completely disoriented, Nathan. Is it all wings? Is is always wings, just slather in wings? hotter okay. and hotter sauces. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one thing, real quick, True TV is also the home of I'm Sorry, Andrea Savage's uh, oh, sitcom, okay. which I highly recommend to you personally, Maloney, and to everyone listening. Okay. Um, I a like friend Andrea of ours Savage. wrote on it. Uh, yeah, a friend of ours wrote on it, and actually, um, Nick Kroll plays uh, a, a guy named Lon, and our really? buddy is named Lon. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> surreal, dude. Oh, um, in terms of this, I've seen a couple of these and, and really enjoyed it. Oh, they're um, great. Partic- I love the show. Yeah, particularly like Key and Peele was really good. Um, and and uh, I, uh, who have you liked on it? Or who have well, you seen on it? Well, my favorite guests, I've watched quite a lot of them, actually. I'd say it's of, of YouTube-specific content where I watch, you know, digital series. It's probably the one I've seen the most episodes of, or at least in the top two or three. Uh, I okay. love when he has super masculine men and they try their hardest to not get taken down by the spiciness. So some sure, men are sure. more successful than others. Like there's a, another meme clip that you see a lot is Idris Elba like choking down super spicy <laughs> wing and struggling. But then on the other side of the coin, uh, one of our podcast uh, titans, uh, Dax Shepard, does a really good job of like holding it together uh, and coming across as manly because he never quite, you know, his poker face it's wavering sure, when it gets slip. really hot, right, right, but he right, doesn't quite right. slip. But yeah, there's there's really great ones. Basically, uh, uh, it, I've never not enjoyed it. So I definitely uh, recommend to all our listeners and to you to go back through the back catalog, find celebrities that you just find interesting, and, and it's fun to watch them go through the uh, gauntlet as they're asked questions. How do you think you would do uh, as a contestant on this show? I know, uh, obviously, your pop co- culture knowledge is probably pretty good, but what yeah, is I would uh, do your okay relationship that- to Spice? Awful. Uh, I, t- quick story. If we we love being vulnerable on this podcast, uh, this is not for the uh, people that are against scatological stories. So you know, uh, t- fast forward if you need to. Uh, there was this. Uh, there is this uh, fast casual Indian mashup kind of place in the Bay Area called Curry Up now, and they are known oh, for this brother <laughs> this tikka masala burrito. Uh, and when I lived in the mission with my one of my best buddies, Michael. Um, we both got them on a Sunday night, sat down with an episode of Game of Thrones, and 
even he who can handle spice well was like sweating eating the thing. And I'm I'm so sure. hungry that I'm eating it even though it's way too spicy for me. Needless to say, yada, 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 Nathan. I, uh, it's the first time I've shat my pants as an adult uh, in the <laughs> middle of the night because things got Holy so cow. bad downstairs. But the, the long and short answer is I would do terribly when actually eating them on camera because I wouldn't be able to get through it. And then the rest of my day would be completely ruined. Sure, sure, sure. And and the rest of this podcast may as well be. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we're coming back from that. Uh, but uh, I will say that I, I think I would uh, dominate this uh, game uh, and look forward to trying to uh, try out for it. I, I think my 18 years as a cigarette smoker would really come in handy in terms of uh, dampening my taste buds. Sure, yeah. Um, and I have at one point in my life drunk obviously i ate a wing so hot i had to sign a waiver oh, oh uh, dear to, to consume it uh and like drank some beer to try to get the the heat away and all the beer tasted like was salt uh and a, a friend we were with put made the mistake of touching his eye uh and it was like basically being you know pepper sprayed yeah um and it was you know your uh it was a, a pretty uh, terrible experience the next day yeah. Um, and then uh, there was a Thai place when I used to live in Northern Virginia that had this uh, pad prick caprao pork and uh, green beans. It was like if you ordered it Thai spicy, they laughed at you and brought you a pitcher of water. Uh, <laughs> it was a challenge uh, to do it, but I, I did it. And so I think I think I would be a, a pretty good contestant on Hot Ones. I don't know that I would compete in our next uh, competitive show. Yeah, uh, right, that we're going to talk about sort of like a informal game show corner here. But per The Hollywood Reporter, uh, humans are going to take on grizzly bears in a new Discovery Channel show that is appropriately titled Man versus Bear in it. Uh, this Wait, but what's the conflict? <laughs> it's right there in the title, Nathan, if you just listen. Uh, in the new competition series, uh, quote, humans will be entering the bear's territory and take them on in a competition like never attempted. So what's going to happen is each week there are three grizzly bears named appropriately Bart, Tank, and my favorite, Honeybump. Uh, they are going to take on three new human competitors that can be male or female at their Utah sanctuary to test the limits of strength, speed, and stamina. And all of the challenges from a game of tug of war to using brute force to roll giant logs will be based on the bear's natural instincts. I use that term very loosely here, as well as predatory skills and actions. Nathan, could you take on a bear? I know you have a polar bear tattoo on you. <laughs> um, I don't actually. It's a wolf. Um, oh. the, uh, uh, go bear, um, go, <laughs> go bears in every episode. Uh, if, if you are foolish enough to get in the ring with a bear, uh, sorry, please, please don't procreate. Um, you know, I, I, we have this idea of, of, uh, anthropomorphized human compassion for these uh, uh, wild animals whose instincts are to kill and eat uh and i hope this goes so so horribly they have to take this off the air to be goes honest with you like, grizzly man style yeah exactly i hope it goes grizzly man style like day one i mean it obviously doesn't because they have a launch date um but it it yeah, come on do we need this shit do we need more more people to think that Nature is approachable and like a Disney-fied version of wild creatures. 
I'm pretty are we not sure... dumb enough? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I, you don't want to ask rhetorical questions like that, Nathan, because we know the answer to that. Uh, I think I, I could be mistaken here. There are not a lot of famous grizzly bear actors, but I believe Bart is. Uh, I've heard that name many times before. Is that is sort of the famous grizzly bear that many Hollywood movies have used? You know, it's like, you know the trained bear. But uh, I've also heard a few actors uh, spin anecdotes about working with Bart the bear, and while you know they never got attacked or anything, it seems like Bart is a bit of a, a prima donna and, and can get a little bit surly. <laughs> so who knows what happens when uh, one of these competition, uh, maybe, you know, if the, if the bear loses or maybe even if it wins, you know, how it might want to show its dominance over the competitor. It could, could get ugly. Sure. I mean, I think it could get, get uh, monstrously ugly. I think that's what they're, they're counting on people thinking as they click over to uh, discovery channel, uh, uh, which I still like, what a hilarious place to have wound up showing man versus bear. Exactly. Like well, to think of what they were doing in 1997. Speaking of ugly, uh, in box office news this week, this past weekend was not a good one for the Terminator franchise. The sixth installment of the franchise entitled Terminator Dark Fate, which included a Linda Hamilton comeback and Arnold still in the fold, managed to earn just $28 million at the domestic bo- box office. And if you're wondering why that's bad, well, the movie reportedly cost nearly $200 million to make. Uh, and the movie didn't fare much better overseas, where it's Typically, this franchise dominates, and the break-even point after marketing costs and Arnold and James Cameron's participation are estimated in is supposed to be around $480 million, so that is Jeez, not looking please. good, uh, looking like a real bomb. Uh, I mean, uh, T2 was amazing. It I don't know if you've seen it recently. It holds up extraordinarily well. It does, yeah. Um, I don't need anything else from this. Yeah, I don't I, know why we're still doing it. Uh, no. Sixth, the sixth movie in the franchise. I was thinking about this and the TV little... show, dude. There was yeah, the TV right. show on Fox. Brian Austin Green starred in uh, from mm-hmm. Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about it a little bit, and the first two movies are both uh, great. T two, one of my favorite movies as a teenager. But when you think about like groundbreaking the effects, yeah, groundbreaking, incredible uh, uh, cinematography and style, and, and yeah. Anyway, go ahead. But I was just going to say that the. The reason, when you think about like the difference between Terminator, one IP that's made these six movies that are have some diminishing returns now, and say Star Wars, I think the thing that uh, the movie companies here are sort of overlooking is the fact that Terminator is almost entirely its success of those first two movies is based on the characters rather than the world it built. Like, sure. T2 really, you know, fleshed out the world of this future dystopia and all this stuff. And I guess people kind of like that. But ultimately, the reason people came to that movie was that John Sarah Connor and Arnold's Terminator character and then Robert Patrick's in, in the sequel were these incredibly compelling heroes and villains that we'd not really seen in before. But I, I didn't come to those movies for the mythology around it, like with Star Wars universe, where you want to explore, you know, the depths of this with all these different races of different aliens and and uh, all these, uh, sure. you know, can put a lot of different characters in that world and make it interesting. But yeah, I, I just think it's a miscalculation I mean, of what made the original franchise successful. Yeah, uh, to put it bluntly, Star Wars has a soul. Uh, you yeah. know, it has the the hero's journey of Luke going from a farm boy to a Jedi and then sort of is able to play on that mythology, as you say, in a lot of really interesting ways. And this, at the end of the day, is about really good bad guys right that's what mm-hmm. stands out Absolutely. in those first two movies is is arnold and then robert patrick um and so i wasn't really surprised uh that this bombed i had absolutely no interest in seeing it i uh you know i thought it was one of those things that was coming out next summer i didn't realize it was yeah it, it really stuck this up. now is whoo yeah i they must the- have known it wasn't gonna do well 
Yeah, they did a lot of uh, ads around the beginning of the NBA season. Famously, they included Kawhi Leonard, who was joked to be like a robot. So they did a very awkward cameo in one of the commercials. But it's just like, oh, I had no idea they were even making another Terminator, let alone that one's coming out next weekend. And clearly the world felt very similarly to us on that note. Yeah, there's I, people just chose to skip over it, I suppose, which uh, ties into our oh, next story. That is a beautiful segue, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> so this is a follow up to last week's discussion about how Netflix potentially might offer viewers the ability to alter the playback speed of their content. We have a new story of interest on that topic. So per The Hill, which is the political site, The Hill, Netflix is m- going to offer a skip button for all the Trump jokes in the new Seth Meyers comedy special entitled Lobby Boy. Now, it was Meyers, the uh, famous late night host, former head writer of Saturday Night Live. Uh, he's a frequent critic of the commander in chief on his late night show. But he said he specifically asked Netflix to craft this button for viewers uh, to bypass presidential related barbs. He said, quote, it was a way to build in the response to anyone who would say, oh, let me guess, there's going to be jokes about the president. It dawned on me that because it was on Netflix, there would be this opportunity to put in technology that would allow people to skip it. Nathan, I clear the floor for you here on this one. Um, so we <clears throat> have a podcast policy here uh, that this is a president-free zone. Um, and this story ties in really well to what we talked about last week of Netflix's variable speed playback, and and it is... A real interesting version of sort of the interactive nature of streaming TV. So we talked about it this week, but I also want to use this opportunity to sort of lay out why we don't talk about the president on this show. Um, and I think in so doing, it, it's about media, it's about development. So I think it'll fit. And and this is not going to be, I'm going to try really hard not to make this a rant because I you know believe these things soberly. Uh, so the first thing that's at play here is that you have uh, if I could, let me, uh, first of all, get on my Aaron Sorkin high horse here. Uh, Giddy up. <laughs> yeah, I got my my Will McAvoy leather jacket and my uh, disdainful sneer. Um, so, all right, so the media oversimplifies politics, right? There's no way around it. You you have complicated issues reduced to eight-second sound bites and eight-second media clips and things like that. And there's no real even... I mean, maybe C-SPAN, that's live coverage, but who the, who the fuck has time or, or the interest to watch that? There's nowhere to go for real, honest information. Um, the way the media chooses to coverage politics is with horse race coverage. Um, this is a, a sort of byproduct of this oversimplification, and the uh, consequences of this horse race coverage are twofold. Uh, it makes people feel like politics is sports, so they don't take politics as seriously. Uh, it feels like a game to them, uh, right? And and it, the other thing it does is it really, really encourages tribalism, right? As Jerry Seinfeld famously uh, joked, you know, at the end of the day, you're just rooting for laundry. Well, when you have political affiliations that are only based on my team versus your team, it, it doesn't matter who you put up there, you root for the person associated with that. This is all sort of made worse by the profit motive, right? Of course, the, the increased uh, you know, corporate ownership of news outlets, corporate ownership of networks means that you have to make money when you present the news. So um, you, you have this uh, idea here where uh, TV has uh, uh, media oversimplifies things um, and, and covers it like sports. And in the sort of wake of the rise of television following Kennedy in 1960, you have this increased uh, sense of power for the U.S. president, right? And it comes from television because ultimately it's easier to cover the executive branch, which is one individual, than the members of the Supreme Court or the 
535, I think, members of Congress, right? Right. The, the so figurehead this, that president is, is is amplified when you can put that figurehead uh, in a very public forum that TV allows for. Exactly right. So you have, on the one hand, uh, this this very, very powerful position that is a TV-heavy position. On the other hand, in this country, again, with media, you have a a, a real problem of presentation of unrealistic expectations in terms of life and lifestyle, right? You have being sold happy endings. You have, you know, we're going to do a Friends episode in a couple of weeks. You have this portrayal that, yeah, if you want to be an actor, you'll get to work. If you want to be a chef, you'll get your own restaurant, right? It's it's this wish fulfillment that's everywhere. You have these, these ludicrous expectations that are created. And we're in a reality in America now where this entire group of people is realizing, oh my God, my life is never going to be what I thought it was from you and me realizing I'm never going to be Larry David and, and we're not going to be like Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld to like a guy in Ohio realizing, oh shit, I don't get to work at the mead factory for the rest of my life. Like my dad did. Right. There's mm-hmm. people whose visions of the future and visions of themselves in the future are being dashed and they're grieving that. And they don't necessarily know they're grieving that. In the midst of this and and sort of capitalizing on this, you have shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad that portray sort of white male frustration and not glorify, although you could reasonably argue that, but certainly portray uh, violence as an antidote often to that frustration. Um, And as a byproduct of sort of them being on TV, people see that as acceptable, right? So they become more and more okay with white male violence. And it's in this arena that the game show host, real estate investor, who is currently our president, ha- can come to power, right? He capitalizes on the TV element of it by uh, uh, sort of putting his face everywhere. He capitalizes on the vulnerability and grief in everyone by making them angry, by promising to dominate their enemies, by promising violence that's justified, right? So he, he is exploiting this huge national weakness and this huge national sense of grief, because I'm sorry to say the American dream is over. It's not a realistic possibility in the version of the world we're living in. And he exploits all of this and he is using the media and forcing the media down to his level and, and to play his game. And his game is unwinnable because it is about dominance. That's how you succeed in the blue collar world. You, you dominate your enemies. I mean, this all, also ties in, obviously, to my dad and to you know, last week's talk about domestic violence. Anyone who has experience being bullied, anyone who has experience being abused, sees in this person, this president, those characteristics, right? And his use of the media creates this, this sense where he, he controls everything, dude. His tweets affect the mood of many people in my life, right? Uh, they affect the news. They, they're, they're, he creates this aura of uh, um, omnipresence and this aura of, of uh, omniscience and this this almost godlike uh, uh, sort of existence. Every omnipresence uh, and and um, not on my fucking show, dude. <laughs> not like no. I'm sorry. Like you're not allowed here. You're you're your you and your bullshit is not allowed here. I don't think you can fight it. I, I I mean, if you want to get super, we started with shit. If you want to end super bleak, like I think we're fucked. I, I mean, when you can say, uh, "Go fuck yourself" to a, a congressional subpoena, 
uh, and there's no instant consequences of reprimand, I, I think we're in a real dangerous place. Um, and, and so I don't want to talk about it. I want to have an escape from that. And I want to have a place where that isn't a, effective and where people can go and know they're not going to have to hear about the shit that I've just rambled about uh, for, for the last few minutes. Um, but that's where we are. And, and yeah, skip the jokes, man. Skip everything about him. Like, turn your back on him. Stop paying attention to him uh, uh, to the extent you can. I, I understand, obviously, you know, this comes from a place of, of white uh, elite. A sort of privilege and and the problems this country faces if if they start to affect me i mean we're really in trouble uh um so i i get that and i do have compassion obviously for for the kids in cages and, and all of the horrible things he's doing but like we need to ignore this son of a bitch a little bit more i think and and he has no place on our show yeah and to tie Thank a quick bow around that with a uh, short coda i would say for me the reason i'm very much on board with the policy that you uh, introduced uh, is twofold. One, um, and most importantly, this show is about thoughtful people because even the worst TV show or movie is created by a thoughtful person. Like they're putting a lot of thought into what they're creating, uh, and that's what we we certainly try to analyze and celebrate here. And we're we're both trying to bring a very thoughtful approach to our own lives and the people uh, how we treat the people around us. And uh, the only criticism I will levy against the president, uh, which I could levy many, is he's perhaps the least thoughtful person I've ever encountered, uh, maybe not personally, but just obviously him being around. So we're going to hit the skip button on talking about him. Yeah, for, let me just, just real quick, let me tie it back in. Uh, uh, I realized I didn't put the button on it. I wanted to of, of um, I think this show is how you should deal with the grief of realizing you're not going to be the superstar you thought you were going to be like this type of conversation with people who are open and willing to feel and be, as you say, thoughtful about that reality that like a lot of what you fill your head with from the ages of 13 to 30 is a fantasy. Um, and coming to terms with that is very difficult and, and, it's very dangerous for the people who aren't. And I think, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back too hard, but I hope that people see this and, and feel a little bit more comfortable having these types of conversations. Absolutely. Uh, and, and speaking of uh, 13-year-old fantasies, let's talk about <laughs> Jennifer Aniston wearing no bra in a very cold studio on a great television program that premiered right around the time we were teenagers, Friends. So per deadline, the TV Our show Our freshman Friends, year of high school that premiered. Yeah, that's right. Uh, perfect timing for old 14-year-old Mike. Um, so the show is going to be returning to movie theaters with a Thanksgiving episode special via Fathom Events as part of the show's ongoing 25th anniversary that's going on this year. Uh, back in September, Fathom raked in more than $3 million with a separate Friends in Theaters event entitled The One with the Anniversary, obviously mirroring the uh, episode title structure the show used, The One with Whatever. Um <coughs> This time around, uh, four Friends giving episodes will be shown that have been remastered in 4K from the original 35mm camera negative, and it will include such classic moments as Monica putting a turkey on her head, Rachel making a curious trifle, Ross revealing an old secret with Brad Pitt in tow, uh, Chandler <laughs> declaring his love for Monica, Joey devouring an entire turkey, my personal favorite, uh, and Phoebe exposing something curious about Chandler's canine allergy. Um, and Nathan, this has uh, done a couple things for us. I don't know if we'll be in theaters to watch these because I own all the DVDs and they're streaming on Netflix anyway. But uh, in two short weeks, 
we uh, have been inspired to have our own Friendsgiving feast, um, sort of in the vein of what we did for Scientology or for Seinfeld way back when, if those of you that have been with us from the beginning. Uh, we will have an entire episode, two weeks from this time, devoted to Friends. We will talk about <coughs> favorite episodes, favorite jokes, Thanksgiving episodes specifically. So if you yeah, have Yeah, the ideas, legacy of the show, critical commentary. Yeah. I think it'll be really interesting and we'll do... Uh, it holds a special place in both of our hearts, and it's one of the reasons, actually, uh, that we became friends in the first place. And so, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be a really interesting episode, uh, and obviously, hopefully, it'll be a a cultural thing that everybody is familiar with. So, if you're if you uh, haven't seen the show, uh, go ahead and binge it. Uh, yeah. it's everywhere. Join uh, the movement between now and that'll that'll drop what the twenty second. Yeah, it'll, it'll drop the uh, Friday before Thanksgiving, so it'll be perfect just in time. Uh, I, friends, I, I always associate with its Thanksgiving episodes because I think they're just some of the best, uh, you know, half-hour multi-cam TV that's ever been created. And if you have ideas of either topics you want us to uh, talk about during the show or certain episodes you want us to draw attention to, you can find us on social media. On Twitter, I am at full of Maloney. Nathan, you are? I am at DeWitticisms, uh, or you can email the podcast at theindevelopmentpodcast at gmail.com. All right. And there's one more story from the news this week that we wanted to talk about, but it deserves its own segment. So we're going to be back with that in just a moment. One interesting story from the trades this week that we thought uh, deserved its own segment because of what it inspired in us is that there's a new Vince Vaughn movie entitled The Last Drop that's been set up courtesy of Sean Levy's production company, 21 Laps. Uh, In the romantic dramedy, Vaughn will star opposite Sharon Horgan, who's best known for her charming Irish brogue in the Amazon show Catastrophe, as well as her hilarious turn in the 2018 comedy Game Night. Um, And the movie will be directed by Christopher Storer. Now, we could talk about this movie specifically, but that's not all that interesting to us because the movie hasn't come out yet. But what we thought might be interesting is Vince Vaughn is is a man that uh, we sort of grew up with a little bit in our teenage years. He became, came to prominence uh, in our high school and college years, and he's had a very interesting career. So we thought we would uh, walk through Vince Vaughn's notable career choices, uh, talk about some of our favorite turns of his. Um, but first, Nathan wanted to set the scene, went to his IMDb page to uh, get us all of our uh, information for this segment. And sure. IMDb has a trademark trademarks of that particular uh, actor if they're if they're particularly famous. Okay. So here are the five trademarks for Vince Vaughn. Sardonic sense of humor. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Frequently works with good friends Ben Stiller and John Favreau, obviously unarguable. Yeah. Um, often plays slobbish slobbish but likable characters. He has debatable on likable. Yeah, it's very <laughs> very debatable on how old you are. I think it depends on how much you like them. Uh, towering sure. height, he's six foot five, which obviously for an actor, him and like Tim Robbins have to be. You know, they're just basically giants among men when it comes to other actors. Sure, and often what an advantage it would be uh, to be two inches taller. My yeah, God. I mean, come on, it would make life a lot better. Um, and often plays sadistic types, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, probably more emotionally sadistic than physically sadistic than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm curious. I'm surprised they left off uh, doing an impression of Michael Keaton in uh, Night Shift. <laughs> the fast talking, uh, you know, acerbic kind of guy. Yeah, no, definitely. I, yeah, I, that like Chicago Midwestern 
type of dude. This is a very Borscht Belt kind of joke, but uh, they also had memorable quotes from him. And the one that I liked, uh, this is just from some interview he gave. He said, if I'm not interested in a woman, I'm straightforward. Right after sex, I usually say, I can't do this anymore. Thanks for coming over. <laughs> okay, great. Anyway, let's get to his <laughs> career here. So he started by with some TV guest spots on shows like China Beach, 21 Jump Street, Doogie Howser. But it was the, his first notable movie role was in 1993's Rudy, which John Favreau was also in. And that's actually the set, I believe, if, if I remember correctly, is where they met and their friendship uh, sprouted. Um, and then more importantly, that spawned his first big movie role with Favreau in 1996 Swingers. Baby, look at me. Look at me. Your money, and you know what else? You're a big winner tonight. I want to leave. You're a big winner. I'm going to ask you a simple question. I want you to listen to me. Who's the big winner here tonight at the casino? Huh? Mikey, that's oh, who. Mikey's the big winner. Mikey wins. All right, fine. I'm an asshole, but you know what? You're the big winner tonight, Mikey. You're the big winner in more ways than one. Sure, so Swingers um, is one of those movies that I didn't realize at the time was changing my life, but changed my life in a lot of ways um most notably my friend and i got into swing dancing uh because of it uh i was in a jump blues and swing band called dr smooth and the big shots nice uh largely because of of swingers uh my style of dress uh, uh certain to a certain extent my hair obviously this is this is the one of the things that helps kick off the swing revival uh, of the late 90s, right, of uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and the Brian Setzer Orchestra and things like that, uh, all of which was in in my wheelhouse at the time. Um, from a me developing as a person standpoint, uh, of course, you watch this and you want to be Trent, like you want to be him uh, in a way that I hadn't ever really... Uh, if I'm honest, hadn't really ever seen in a movie that uh, to that extent. Right. Um, uh, you were the exact same age. Right. So yeah. and what this, was your reaction to seeing it? Right. I, well, the movie came out in 96, but I would say that I really came to it a few years later on video when I was in college and I went to college in L.A. Uh, and Swingers was the most quoted movie with me and my college friends. And on top of it, um, we were in driving distance to Vegas. So the whole Vegas baby Vegas thing, my entire 21st birthday, we went to drove out to Vegas from LA. And of course, it was just swingers quotes right and left. And I think the thing sure. that it makes me think about at the time, it creates a lot of this uh, fantasy element that we talk a lot about how, you know, idealizing what it's like to be up and coming in LA. But especially now with retrospect, looking back, the thing that I actually appreciate about the movie, because of course, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be Vince Vaughn's Trent character. Um, sure. But but looking back at it now and even watching clips to research for the show today, I was struck by the thing that I appreciate about the movie is that they're not super successful. They are kind of struggling through LA. And, and it actually is pretty true to life to what our LA experience was like in the sense that they weren't the you know we were we were more like Mikey or Ron Livingston's character um, playing sure. playing golf at that nine hole course that we actually used to play uh, probably uh, slightly inspired by swingers as well um, of just like struggling through muddling through but ultimately the best thing to come out of that wasn't any break that we got but the friendships that we created through the that shared uh, you know dream that we had right and and that they talk like tough guys and are interested in Scorsese films but ultimately really only care about getting laid now rings true in a way it obviously didn't then 
Um, but but I thought that was very well observed. And it's it's <clears throat> interesting. It's one of the first movies I can remember that watching it felt like hanging out with my friends. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a reason one of my uh, best friends hates that movie is he's like, no, I'd just rather talk to you guys. Yeah. You know, like he, he's like, I'd ra- I think it's funnier the interactions we have. Um, For me, it, it was is, always the it, uh, the NHL hockey video game scene. It was like where it really totally felt right, like right, it was right. just like picking an exact moment that I'd had with my brother or my friends a thousand times and just done with Vince Vaughn's charisma set over it. Yeah. And, and from a filmmaking standpoint, you know, indie movie, they made it in two weeks. Like it was a really cool, um, cool thing of an era. I, I haven't seen it in a while, but for for this uh, podcast, I was thinking about it last night and and you know, I always watched it wanting to be Trent, but ultimately, as you say, like related more to Mikey and, and needed to, I think, uh, dance with Heather Graham more, (laughs) right? Just (laughs) stop whining and dance with Heather Graham. Like, I mean, you're not going to be that other dude, but who you are is awesome. And just stop fucking complaining and, and live the great things about you. Um, So uh, Vince Vaughn, this, you know, it was a skyrocketing moment for his early career. It put him on the map. He was obviously the biggest, uh, even though John Favreau has gone on to have a great uh, directing career, uh, Swingers was directed. Well, we could do a whole episode yeah. on Favreau's well, weird we probably will tentacles of his career. Yeah. But, yeah, so, we, uh, but so this puts Vince Vaughn on the map and it's directly leads to Steven Spielberg seeing him in Swingers, putting him in the Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World, which is uh, from a very, uh, it seems like a very early point in his career, even though he always knew he was funny, Vaughn has and continued has continued to try to uh, flex his dramatic acting muscles and and the lost world did use him a bit as uh comic relief but it, a more serious film that was not a particularly good movie though i i can't say no don't don't remember him don't really remember it um but you know can't uh, we're not gonna have a lot to say about it no. <laughs> let's move on to the the next phase of his career when he does sort of flex those dramatic muscles a yeah, little so bit more. Yeah, so in 1998 he made two films. Uh, one smaller film that w- we probably like a lot more, Clay Pigeons, which was a dark comedy that starred uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Janine Garofalo. Um, and then he also did the Psycho remake, Gus Van Sant's shot for shot remake of Psycho, uh, where he played the main character. So that obviously two won the indie direction, won the sort of big studio direction of uh, starting to go in a more dramatic, going to a d- more dramatic place. Yeah, saw those both in the theater um, with friends back when, like, uh, I was living in Boston at the time, and it was playing at an arty theater in in Cambridge, so we'd get on the red line and go under the Charles River, and and because of Vince Vaughn, man, uh, you know, it was because of his charisma, because of of uh, what he brought to the table. Obviously, with Clay Pigeons, you had uh, Joaquin Phoenix, and who's the is it Janine Garofalo? Yeah, Janine, Janine, and Joaquin. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, I remember that from the ad campaign now, um, (laughs) the, uh, uh, but yeah, it was, it it was a a cool time for, for indie film and it felt cool, particularly in clay pigeons to watch him bring some menace, uh, uh, to it. You know, obviously there was, there was menace to Trent that I didn't understand at the time. Right. Uh, completely. But, uh, uh, the menace in, in clay pigeons was far more in your face. And then obviously psycho was playing a psycho um but but those were were very good roles i thought you know he's always been better in that and i thought that set up uh his, the stage for him to do what he did in in that much maligned true detective season that we'll talk about here in a little bit yeah 
he continued uh, this sort of dramatic turn in 2000 with a very infamous bomb, uh, The Cell with Jennifer Lopez, where he played a detective trying to get inside the mind of a, I think J-Lo's a serial killer. I can't remember the plot exactly, but needless to say, it was a huge bomb. And it kind of, between that and the Psycho remake not being very successful either, it kind of, his career was, you know, on the downturn almost as soon as it had gotten, you know, that early break. Um, and then in 2001... I saw The Cell in the theater. Okay. Uh, again, because of Vince Vaughn. Uh, he's a cop. Uh, they have to, like, go inside somebody's dreams. Right. Uh, and subconscious, basically, to to find where they've hidden uh, the victim. Uh, and so it's a trip through their subconscious. It's a strange movie. I mean, it was uh, not great um, we won't you know be, we will, don't be devoting an entire podcast to it at any point i think that's no i wouldn't i wouldn't imagine we'll ever talk about the cell again no. just gratuitous pot smoking by j-lo in that which i appreciate <laughs> awesome um so his career's kind of on a little bit of a, a dip there and so he comes back to his buddy favreau and they do the movie made where ostensibly like a swinger sequel where he's they're playing gangster versions of mikey and trent uh where uh, maybe because Favreau had matured a little bit, but uh, you take Vince Vaughn's character a little less seriously. He's a little more silly in 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 like not to be taken seriously rather than the sort of oracle of how to pick up women that he is in Swingers. Um, and what's most interesting, though, is that the rest of 2001 includes him kind of. Uh, hold, on, a- hold on, hold on, sure. hold on, hold on, hold on. You're, you're underselling how terrible made is. Uh, he is one of the most annoying characters <laughs> ever to be put on film. In that movie. I think that's the point. Like, yeah, I think the I think point so. is that he's a, uh, that fucking idiot friend you have who, who he, takes it too far. He's the but exact, man, uh, he's the comedic, uh, version of Edward Norton's worm character in Rounders, but awful, you know, like the guy that comes mm-hmm, in and screws mm-hmm. everything up, but, with, but is bumbling. Yeah, and, but with a, a Michael Scott energy to yeah, him as well exactly. of, yep. of, um, just total unawareness. I, I have... I watched that movie once and was like, well, I'll never fucking watch that again. And then, you know, you see it on, on cable and you end up being like, well, I'm going to dissect this. Uh, and it is just not good, man. It is it is trying way too hard uh, and and really was, I mean, as we'll see, like he, he sort of bottoms out after this, right? Well, uh, after that, uh, it, also in 2001, the important thing that happened in his career is he did an uncredited role uh, cameo in Zoolander as Ben Stiller's brother. Uh, and that would start their partnership, which is going to set up his revival in his career uh, comedically. But he also did uh, in 2001 Domestic Disturbance, a sort of horror thriller movie that was, again, not successful at all. And that really put him down in the dump so much so he doesn't make another movie uh, until 2003. But this is a very important one. It's his comeback in old school. And the fact is, I got 40 strangers out in my living room and all I want to do is get some fucking sleep. So I'm sorry, but we're not starting a fraternity. I don't know why you got to do it in front of the kid with the effing. All you got to do is say earmuffs to him. Earmuffs. They can say fuck, shit, bitch, whatever you want. Cock, balls. Okay, I'm just proving a point. You don't have to celebrate it, Frank. Take them off. Don't say sorry to me. You let down Frank, you let down me, you let down Max, most importantly. And right about now, I'm having a real hard time trying to figure out why I take time out of my schedule just to try to help you get over earmuffs. That whore that you dated, 
So this is obviously a huge comedic turn. Blockbuster, Todd Phillips uh, kind of hits it out of the park. He gets Will Ferrell at the perfect point in his career. He gets the Vince Vaughn comeback. And then, of course, Luke Wilson doing Luke Wilson things. Uh, I don't know about you, Nathan, but this is one of the hardest times I've ever laughed in the theater. The first 45 minutes of that movie I saw with my brother and my stepdad when they were visiting me in L.A. And I, I was laughing so hard those first 45 minutes. The rest of the movie is just okay. But that, that first 45 minutes I'd put up against just about anything, at least at that time in my life. Um, This movie saved my life? Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, so I was, it came out February 21st, 2003. Uh, I was living in New York trying to be a novelist and super into this girl and we had gotten to a place where like we couldn't talk to each other anymore um nothing was working it was winter my buddy um was like let's go see this movie uh and like i trudged up from my place uh in the village up to like i think 32nd street just walking you know in that way you do when you're depressed and just needed a laugh man in like the realest of 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 ways and his character from the get-go man when he is in the wedding uh telling uh, will ferrell frank the tank that he's making a mistake and, <laughs> yep. and you know columbus wasn't working looking for america but it seemed to work out for everybody my man my favorite Just was his when energy. Uh, yeah when the yeah, dad when the dad brings uh, perry reeves who ends up being uh, ari's wife on entourage to the uh to the, the podium and he com- just completely shifts from telling uh frank that he needs to get out of the wedding and he just he looks the the dad and the, the future father-in-law in the eye and he's like takes a real man to give away an angel and i, I just remember just yeah dying. it was i mean as as two guys who have uh, like a million seinfeld clips in the intro to our podcast obviously we appreciate a, a charismatic asshole and in that movie he was amazing i mean personally for me the when Farrell took the dart like I've never, literally, never in my life laughed that hard. Yep, I'm with um, you. But Vince Vaughn in it was just his swagger was amazing, and it was it would uh, honestly I would want uh, watch all of the movies we're going to talk about next, hoping he would be that Speaker City guy, and and it never quite materialized. Yeah, uh, for me, but but this was a, a a sort of crowning achievement for him and and for Todd Phillips and who like. You know, this and Hangover were of an era, but I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. My opinions on Todd Phillips are, are for a different podcast. I yeah, suppose. that that will be a different one. So, two thousand four. Now he's just he goes full bore into both his friendship with Ben Stiller and making these comedies. So, two thousand four, he puts out this trifecta: Nathan, Starsky and Hutch, uh, Dodgeball. And then he has a small but very memorable cameo in Anchorman as Wes Mantooth. And that, that's a powerhouse of three comedies there. Uh, you know, not all my favorites, and but really successful m- movies. All movies that hold up to a second viewing and get funnier on second and third viewings. All movies that I went to see in, uh, I think, probably the same theater in Virginia where you can drink. It's like a theater draft house. So you uh, yeah, they show yeah. movies a little bit after their first run. Um, and, you know, you get pizza and beer and uh, obviously great, a great environment for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a raucous environment. And, yeah. And and the the type of thing that like going to the movies could be, you know, where it's it's you're there with your group of friends, but you're there with a bigger group of people. And you're having this uh, profound, too strong a word, but this meaningful experience, um, you know, because you're laughing at the same stuff or even there, you know, in, inevitably yeah. to, to me, two people are calling stuff out. 
of my five favorite things to do in the world to sit in a dark theater and in a good comedy on you know where you're completely surprised which obviously is a key to comedy and just everyone laughing at the same stuff just that energy i mean i could i i if there's a heaven it's just getting to live in that energy for a long time being with your good buddies you know i miss it man i miss i don't feel like there's been very many comedies that got me out of the house yeah. Uh, to be honest, I get it a little bit like when I show, uh, you know, TV shows to my class that are funny. I get to sort of sit in an audience of, of everyone laughing. But I don't remember, to be honest with you, the last comedy that I was like, I've got to get to a theater for this. Yeah. As I, I, I game night, which I mentioned earlier, was probably sure. the last one that I really had that experience. And that was over a year and a half ago. So not not very often. So uh, getting back to Vince Vaughn here. So he capitalizes now. He's got his stardom back. He plays a supporting role in the 2005 film Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which, of course, best known for Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie getting together. But he plays a hilarious character who's living with his mother. It's like, I think, the arms dealer that uh, Brad Pitt goes mm-hmm. to for his, his guns. And a uh, really nice uh, supporting role for him. And then his big... Yeah, quick, quick. Hold on, yeah. hold on. Hold on. Real, uh, from a, a, you know, we both have MFAs in screenwriting. The first act of that movie, man... It is good, but yeah. it is a very, very compelling opening 25 minutes. And honestly, a great premise, like an all timer, uh, all timer premise. And and uh, to be honest with you, man, it's pretty great until act three. Yeah, I, agree. Um, I think that it, it really is good. A, a really well, uh, pardon this horrible pun, but a really well executed movie. Um, and one I would I would totally see. Obviously, you have to go a slightly different angle with it, but I'd watch the shit out of that Netflix show. Yeah, that would be um, great. You know, different leads in the same same property, but yeah, um, sort, sort of like the Killing Eve version of the spy versus spy kind of thing that can could, yeah. could be unfold over a longer period. Yeah, so uh, he finishes off 2005 with a star turn uh, in Wedding Crashers. Janice, I apologize to you if I don't seem real eager to jump into a forced, awkward, intimate situation that people like to call dating. I don't like the feeling. You're sitting there, you're wondering, do I have food on my face? Am I eating? Am I talking too much? Are they talking enough? Am I interested? I'm not really interested. Should I play like I'm interested, but I'm not that interested? But I think she might be interested, but do I want to be interested? But now she's not interested. So now all of a sudden I'm getting, I'm starting to get interested. And when am I supposed to kiss her? Do I have to wait for the door? Because then it's awkward. It's like, well, good night. Do you do like the ass out hug? Where you like to, you hug each other like this and the ass sticks out because you're trying not to get too close. You just go right in and kiss him on the lips. So don't kiss him at all. It's very difficult trying to read the situation. And all the while you're just really wondering, are we going to get hopped up enough to make some bad decisions and perhaps play a little game called just a tip just for a second just to see how it feels so this may not be my favorite vince vaughn movie but you could certainly make an argument that it's sort of the peak of his his powers in the sense that that movie was incredibly popular him and owen wilson have an amazing chemistry together and it's not a movie that holds up quite as well for me as swingers or old school when it comes to rewatchability but obviously some of those scenes uh talk about you know being in a theater and and enjoying the laughter experience Uh, i definitely can remember where i was when i watched that one too when my wife saw my DVD collection and saw that I owned Wedding Crashers for the first time, like on our fourth or fifth date or something, she her exact words were, oh, so you're a bro. <laughs> um, yeah, very much so. And she's not wrong. Like it is is one of those movies that, yeah, in 2005, I remember I saw it at the Grove, like uh, with maybe even with Gary. Um, but uh, it was I loved it in the theater. I loved it all through grad school, and then sometime around 2010, I started to realize, oh, this isn't a very good movie. Yeah. Um, and now, obviously, like, uh, you know, married and, and aware of the world and, and um, things like that, understand the sort of predatory aspect to <laughs> yes. what they do. 
Yeah. Uh, Isn't great. No. Uh, You know, but lots of laughs, great chemistry with Owen Wilson. They would try to replicate that a number of times. Yeah. Um, And yeah, sort of the, the, is it the highest grossing of of any of these films we've talked about? That wouldn't really, maybe. I I believe it is. I believe it would be. We'd have to double check the numbers. But But yeah, it would, it would be the, yeah, the ultimate sort of. All the tools uh, he has to offer are brought to bear, I think, in that. Yeah, and that, um, and that, and he was set movie. up to succeed there because you both also have Rachel McAdams at like the height of her it girlness, and most importantly, <laughs> uh, before he becomes a huge star, actually, Bradley Cooper playing the heel, and he does he plays the shit out of the heel in that movie, which is a lot of fun. Christopher Walken as well, but yeah, that, that was yeah, you have some one. some amazing performances in there. Those all all of that holds up really well. So he takes the cachet from Wedding Crashers, and in 2006, he produces and stars in uh, The Breakup. Shoe, 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 shoe. Um, shoe is so jack. Draw something different. Draw something different. No one's getting it. Was it a smaller shoe? Baby shoe. Smaller shoe. Shoes. Baby shoes. Baby shoes. Smaller shoe. Gum shoe. Smaller shoe. Running Olympics. Inside the shoe. Inside the shoe. A bumper tracer lining a shoe. Stop pointing at the shoe. We're not. No one's guessing shoe. Stop pointing at the shoe and draw something different. Draw something different. God damn it! No one's guessing shoe. You drew a big shoe, then a small shoe, and no one got it. You got to draw something different. Everyone said shoe seven times. It's a sock asshole. You call yourself an artist, a three-year-old with a box of crayons could do a better job than this. So obviously, uh, he and Jennifer Aniston, this entire movie is built around their chemistry. uh, And I believe they actually ended up dating for a bit in real life after or maybe started during the filming of this movie. but yeah, I actually think this is a pretty underrated Vince Vaughn movie because, uh, you know, it doesn't have the classic Hollywood ending where they end up together. So in some ways, I think it gets kind of uh, swept under the rug. But there's there's a lot of fun and they have great chemistry, the two of them. Yeah. And their their argument about like, uh, I want you to want to do the dishes, you know, that all of it rings really real. And I think that's part of um, why it doesn't uh, uh, hold up like wedding crashers. You know what I mean? It's not the mm-hmm. fun sort of. Uh, escapist uh, energy of that. Uh, shout out to Favreau, who has a pretty good turn in, in this as like his yeah, cousin or head. his buddy or something. Yeah, he's the like, meathead yeah, that's just ready to get in a fight at any at any uh, a drop of a hat. He's ready to throw down. Yeah. Um, this movie is interesting because I, I ended up uh, living it in a lot of ways. When I lived in L.A., I, I was living with a woman uh, I was also sleeping with, and we weren't I mean, we were we were dating, I suppose, but not really. Uh, and then we decided we weren't going to sleep together anymore, but we still had to live together uh, for like six or eight weeks before it ultimately uh, she moved out. Um, not funny, dude. Not a funny no, scenario. I, not that a, was not at a the fun height scenario. of our uh, hanging out during our LA days, and so yeah, I can I can vouch for uh, secondhand. Not not a not a funny story. Yeah, it was a little bit. I mean, it was Charles Bukowski's The Breakup, but <laughs> it, it was um, I get why people didn't didn't respond to this. I actually saw it in the theater with a girl I broke up with shortly after seeing it. Um, not like that night, but, um, you know, it's it's it was a good choice. I thought it was well made. I, I think it's you know, if it's on cable, I'll watch it. Um, and it, it made me, from the production standpoint, made me sort of think of him in a little bit of a different light rather than, oh, there might, rather than him being just this like silly dude, I thought, oh, there might actually be something going on here. His career choices that followed uh, did not necessarily back up that thesis, although I do agree with you in the bigger term. So he did a small part in Into the Wild, uh, which obviously is a serious Academy Award nominated film, but then from 07 
to 09, he made this trio. Uh, I can never say that word. Let's just go a trio. Fred Claus, which he reportedly got $20 million for, Four Christmases and Couples Retreat, uh, which tried to capitalize on that similar formula with similar actors in it. But uh, those three movies have some laughs in them. But I think it's I don't think you'll disagree with me to say that all three of those movies are train wrecks as far as actual good stories. I mean, I've, I've never seen them. Um, but I'll tell you what, man, the Fred Claus and Four Christmases will be on every year for the rest of time. That's true. Christmas right? movies. That's yeah. They have that longevity. Um, you know, every, I, every I could... flight to Fiji has couples retreat on, on the plane, you know, so that, mm-hmm. that, there's that mm-hmm. too. Dude, Fred Claus is a funny ass title. It like, is. It might be as good as it gets, you know, like the whole movie is, is never as good as that title, but that's a very, I know what your movie is. Yeah, they, um, they're very much. Uh, Dax Shepard has talked about this because Kristen Bell was in Couples Retreat. That that last yeah. one is such. Uh, uh, hey, all my funny friends, do you guys want to go spend uh, three months in Bora Bora with your significant others right. and make this movie? And and it just, I think there's just something about the movie. It, it's the exact opposite of like an Ocean's Eleven, where it seems like it's fun to hang out in Las Vegas with all those guys, where you can sure. almost smell them mailing it in and having a good time when they're off camera, but the movie itself does not really work. Right. It's that Sandler um, yes. Yes. theory of like, yeah, let's do another movie in Hawaii. Yeah, uh, with all my buddies, and it's like, okay, I get what's happening here. It it, um, it shows though that uh, just talking through his career here, just you see the natural ebb and flow of basically most, unless you're like Meryl Streep or something, every actor's career kind of ebbs and flows. And it's just a matter of whether you come <coughs> back or not. Uh, and things kept getting worse in 2000. So that was there's two years <laughs> after those three movies came out, all mostly bombs. He made the dilemma. Well, which to be fair, he up. was spending that twenty million dollars for Fred Claus. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, minor success in 2013 with the internship, which repaired him with Owen Wilson. It was a mild hit, not a big hit. Uh, he did the movie Delivery Man, which was very meh. Um, so it set him up for another comeback, and this time trying to go back to his, uh, you know, flexing those dramatic muscles in 2015 on the heels of a very successful first season. But they're going to recast an uh, entire new cast. True Detective Season 2. Why would somebody come after you like that guy? I mean, that was crazy, right? I don't know. They just... <laughs> what did you do to piss somebody off? Can you think of anything? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I'm asking you. What you might have did to get guys like that after you. What did I know you? I've never seen you before, but I saw the whole thing, and I wish we could figure out what you did. Like some kind of behavior that guys like that would have issue with. Like mouthed off or made a gesture or you're running book in Vinci sweatshops. What? Is that what this is? Is what 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 is? Is that what you think this is? It just seems to me like you pissed off some serious people. Maybe you ought to take more care. Nathan, uh, I'm assuming you were as big a fan as I was of the first season of True Detective. So where are you when the announcement comes of like the new cast for season two? Oh, I, I was here in Chicago and I was obviously super excited about it. I, I thought they were going to do a, a good job. And if you pitched me the story of True Detective Season 2, I would love it. Um, <clears throat> I think that he had – well, so let's talk about the, the series for a second and then we'll talk about him. <clears throat> um, so True Detective Season 2 couldn't win, right? It it wasn't possible. The first season was entirely written by Nick uh, uh, Pizzolatto. Pizzolatto, yeah. Pizzolatto, is that how you say it? I, um, I think that's close enough. Okay, so he'd written it himself. It was all, I think, like uh, 600 pages. And it is something that 
in one way or another, he had been working on his entire life. It was a band's right? first album, right? That you had. It was a band's there. first album. Exactly right. It was a, a novelist's first novel. It was his voice coming out in a whole new way and tricks he'd been developing and cultivating his entire life being utilized. And he had 18 months to do season two and millions of dollars on the line and millions of people tuning in and expecting it and big, big name talent associated with it. And he had alienated, by the way, a person who is extremely responsible for part of the genius of the first season, Kerry Fukunaga, yeah, uh, to the point that they had to bring yep. in like hired guns to bring this literary writer's work to cinematic life. And so it, it there's no way it was going to work. Um, and then they were like super lazy in elements of the production. I mean, if you're naming your bad guy catalyst, you need to do a rewrite. <laughs> uh, that is rule like 10 of screenwriting. Um, but Vaughn shines in it. Um, uh, uh, you know, I thought he was pretty good as this sort of aging uh, gangster, right? Who's who's getting screwed over. Uh, yeah, and, he basically and, ostensibly plays the bad guy in, in this, the heavy mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. season. Yeah, and and I thought he was menacing. I mean, you really felt his six foot five frame. You really, I believed him as sort of washed up and and having once been powerful. Right yeah. in a in a way of oh I might go to a wedding and lie to a woman to fuck her you know like that yep. kind of oh okay like this guy you keep your kids away from him um, and I yeah, thought you know if, if you think about the clip in in Swingers and then the clip we just played for True, True Detective you can see how you can use that same energy that sort of manipulative fast talking energy in when he's young and vibrant and trying to get his buddy laid versus here shaking somebody down and trying to be menacing. It it can work in either direction. So you kind of found an outlet to be able to flex those dramatic muscles uh, without abandoning what like his central talent is as an actor, I think. Yeah. And I think there were a few laughs, you know, obviously he's a little hammy, right? So there were a couple moments where that, that got to shine through. Um, And I thought he was, he was, you know, the, um, donut in the garbage bin that was that show (laughs) (laughs) or eclair if you're george costanza and you you yeah yeah, yeah. eclair in the trash can that was that show all right so to to wrap up this segment real quickly just to bring us to the present uh he made hacksaw ridge in 2016 directed by mel gibson which did get nominated for a few academy awards uh he made a film i'm not familiar with called brawl in cell block 99 in 2017 that's Uh, not your that's not one of your top five no, it is not going to make my list of, of favorites. Uh, 2018, he executive produces and uh, is also a voice in F is for Family. That's the uh, Bill Burr uh, animated series. Uh, and then in this past year, he had a role in Fighting With My Family, the movie with The Rock about the wrestling family that was supposed to be well-liked, although not particularly a huge box office success. But there are not as many notable titles there, Nathan. But I thought we might finish up the segment by... Uh, introducing uh, a little device we will hopefully get to use in the future where we examine someone's career. Uh, you came up with this amazing term. Let's go through Vince Vaughn's our four tops. So our, his four top performances or top films that he was in. W- what's your list of uh, your four tops for, for Vince Vaughn? Sure. So, I, I mean, two of these are no-brainers, right? Uh, uh, given, obviously, our conversation, people understand swingers and um, old school. Both uh, and then list. for yep. me... Uh, the breakup and uh, True Detective are are really things I will remember 
him for, I suppose. And and I mean, obviously, Wedding Crashers too. Yeah, my my list was Swingers, Old School, The Breakup, and Wedding Crashers. Uh, I like I said, I don't think the Wedding the Wedding Crashers holds up particularly well in uh, a more evolved place per se. However. Uh, as far as movie montages go, set to music, that that opening montage in that movie where they start going to all the weddings. I mean, you can put oh that up God, against yeah. anything, like any Scorsese movie montage uh, set to music. It's it's incredible. I mean, just the energy. You and, got shouting and boobs. You're yeah. You're doing it right. If you're, you're not playing movie. that song at your wedding, which you did, we did play it at your wedding. So you're you're off the hook here. You're you're totally good. But if you don't yeah, play, I'm uh, a white person. Shout, of course, yeah. we played it at my wedding. You don't play shout at your uh, recep- wedding reception. You're you're just not doing it right. All right. I think that's been a pretty good cover of uh, his career. If you have other people you want to hear us cover, shoot us an email or uh, check us out on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, look forward to doing this again. Yeah. We're going to come back and I'm going to pitch Mike some ideas for uh, content based on uh, intellectual property you'll all be familiar with. So that may not make sense now, but I promise it'll make sense when we come back. Welcome back. So we are in an era uh, of film and television and content where um, existing commodities are being rebooted uh, and revived all the time, right? So a revival is the old cast coming back to play uh, roles you're familiar with. So Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt coming back to Mad About You, um, the Connors coming back on on Roseanne. Will and Grace uh, and a got re- rebooted. Will and Grace, yeah, many, 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 many shows. Uh, and a reboot is an old show, uh, old show idea done with new people. So like Lethal Weapon um, or things like that. Uh, so one of the reasons this is happening is there's no acquisition costs for these ideas. The studios and networks already own them. So you don't have to pay uh, a creator to, for the rights to use, you know, the Connors or the characters on Mad About You. Uh, they already own them. So they're a little bit cheaper. Uh, to produce, they're also uh, significantly easier to sell the public, right? Because obviously you have a nostalgia factor and a built-in audience. Um, so with that in mind, I wanted to sort of throw out some ideas to you, Mike, for IP-based uh, uh, projects. Most of these are sitcoms. Uh, one of them is a movie. Yeah. Um, based on existing content, but sort of approached from a different angle. Okay. Um, and so I think you'll you'll get sort of what we're talking about here. All right. Well, uh, why don't you come in, in sit minute. down on my couch? I'll give you a free bottle of water, and then I'll just look at you with no reaction at all as you pitch me on your stories. And I silently okay. Judge if you. you could look at your phone during the entirety of the segment, that would really help me. Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. So the first is based on uh, my favorite uh, sitcom of all time, News Radio. Uh, the sitcom Phil Hartman was working on when he was tragically murdered, mm-hmm. uh, and it is uh, so. If you remember News Radio, it's set at a New York radio station. Dave Foley is the boss. Uh, Moira Tierney is the sort of woman who thinks she should be boss with whom he starts to have a relationship. Uh, Vicki Lewis is the assistant. Uh, Andy Dick is the zany one. Phil Hartman was the, the a-hole replaced by, then replaced by John Lovitz. Uh, and Joe Rogan was the electrician. So the spinoff I want to do is a world where the electrician has become a huge podcast host. Uh, <laughs> and Dave is now his assistant, right? So uh, Dave Foley basically has to work for Joe Rogan. 
Um, I don't know if they would actually do this because that, this is too close to reality, right? Like, <laughs> um, so I don't know that they would make that one because we're actually living in it. Um, but I do think these and uh, must-see TV sitcoms are, are very good for this type of thing. Uh, so how about Friends? You know, we talked about it earlier. You want to hear my Friends uh, uh, spinoff idea? Well, do you want to hear my news radio feedback first? Or do you oh, want sure. Me to, yeah. Of course. I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't mean to steamroll over you, <laughs> development executive. You're, we're I so have, looking at your phone. have some thoughts, Nathan, that uh, you know, you've, Please, you've given this course. a lot of thought. I'm just hearing this for the first time. But of course, I think I have a better handle on the idea than you do, as all development executives do. Uh, no, I think that actually um, that, that sounds like a great uh, premise because you take uh, flip the you know minor character minor character and a major character i assume you would lean into joe rogan's on-air personality these days you know all the hyperbaric chamber mma fighting weed pro weed stance with his sure character. but also dude all a lot of that is in his character from news <laughs> yeah, radio joe true. gorelli like it's yeah. it's based on him in a lot of ways and based on his act has actually replaced uh, a different guy was the um janitor in the uh or electrician in the pilot and then they replaced uh, that's right replaced him yeah and i think dave foley's um, energy would play off of that real well especially with the sort of resentment of now having to work for this guy that used to be the electrician at the radio station he ran mm-hmm, um mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. and I, really that they're just it's more like a buddy comedy and i'm sure you could populate that with some great characters but him being the producer for a joe rogan type podcast especially with all that rogan has going on in his life i i imagine just because rogan has so much going on in his life with the podcast and mma announcing that i don't know if he'd have time for it but i would love to see that show Let, let's hear the next no one. he would he wouldn't have time for it or interest but i think i'll tell you who would is andy dick yeah you could actually get andy dick <laughs> you think we could get him fully to do this show yeah would- um so maybe it's matthew instead of uh joe yeah um all right i think that's that's totally valid uh, uh feedback and i have another must-see tv uh based idea so based on friends you know hugely popular uh gone up in value the last few years gone up in popularity the last few years so I want to stay at Central Perk. Uh, we're there present day. Uh, Gunther is still running the place. Now, you can use the old actor or I think a uh, Jim Gaffigan would be a very good uh, a person to sort of bring on as older Gunther. You think he might have better um, comedic chops than the original Gunther to carry a show? Sure. With? And I mean, you're going to have to track that guy down. Uh, <laughs> so he's at some Starbucks in the Valley, I'm sure. Um but so Jim Gaffigan is Gunther, um, and he runs Central Perk, and it's a straight-ahead, uh, you know, uh, Cheers-type sitcom set there, set amidst uh, the sort of Friends set. And you have tie-ins to the original storyline uh, because it is a, a sort of tourist attraction because uh, jazz musician Phoebe Buffay uh, is famous for having hung out there, as is Oscar-winning actor Joey Tribbiani. So you sort of extend the the mythology, forgetting about Joey. Uh, obviously, the, that that's a spinoff. Um, and then uh, I thought it might be fun if one of the central characters or maybe even two of them are um, Emma Geller-Green. So Ross's uh, uh, Ross and ah, Rachel's daughter could like come the in there to be a reboot, Taking the, the kid yeah. and making him into a main character. Yeah. I thought she could come in from Long Island and, and like secretly right be performing there. Um, and that, uh, maybe Ben is there like doing more like punkish music or trying to do stand up because being I, I don't a real asshole ben like out. Ben always was on friends. <laughs> yeah. I don't imagine Ben turns out normal, right? Like, or, or even necessarily likable. Um, and then I thought if you want to go, I pitched it multi-cam, but if you want to go cable, there's room for a sort of, um, not sexual, but a relationship between Emma Geller Green and Gunther. Uh, to sort of give him a sense of of renewed vigor in life and and uh, rejuvenation, 
uh, and, uh, you know, uh, connecting with her in ways he could never connect with uh, her mother. But not sexual. No, not sexual. <laughs> Emotional. I, I mean, it makes sense that he would be obsessed with uh, Rachel's daughter, given that he was obsessed I don't think with anybody Rachel. wants to see Jim Gaffigan fucking 18-year-old. No. I mean, let's be no. pretty reasonable about that. Uh, yeah, I, I like that one. I, I, I like the Joe Rogan one. So far, I, that one, uh, the first one uh, resonated with me a little bit more just because of the, the cast involved. But yeah, let's, let's, hear, the, let's sure. hear the next one. Uh, my other one is, again, the Musty TV universe. Uh, it is a prequel. We are going to uh, FX with this idea. This is a dark uh, 30-minute uh, show set in the uh, late 80s and early 90s world of network television. Okay. Uh, and it is about an up-and-coming star. Uh, in the NBC development world, uh, helping to work on shows like uh, The Cosby Show, uh, maybe even uh, Miami Vice. Uh, you know, those are both 84, but uh, you could work in other shows of note from the, the 80s. Um, and the woman's name is Susan Ross. Uh-huh. And it's uh, and the series would end with her meeting George Costanza for the second time, all right, agreeing to take him back the second time. But it chronicles all of the sort of relationship trials and tribulations she has that leads her to settle for someone so far beneath <laughs> yeah it's almost like the darth vader story in the first three episodes uh you know the prequels kind of thing that's setting up the darkness setting up uh, her her life choices and why they would go so far off the rails mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think it'd be really interesting i think it's a really compelling world uh, I think you have the opportunity for some some sort of larger than life characters there with uh, Warren Littlefield and uh, Brendan Tartikoff and things like that, uh, and and you know uh, a real interesting exploration of the way sort of your history with relationship boxes you relationships boxes you into making the same sort of choices again and again and again. Yeah, and sort it, of like a sitcom character is stuck. And in, if you uh, if you Aaron Sorkinized it like you did in Newsroom, you could also make Susan's life events make her responsible for creating all of the great shows because of some inspiration in her life that she gave to a writer and inaccurately, of course. That could be great. Yeah, she could have come up with Alf. <laughs> right, that could have been her. I'd love to see the episode um, that leads to Alf. <laughs> uh, so I, I I like that, and then then sticking with NBC uh, in the '90s projects. Um, I don't know if you saw Fresh Prince of Bel Air is going to be on uh, HBO Max. Oh no! Um, I mean, right? What what a weird hodgepodge of shows they're going to have. But uh, so in that universe, I think a natural uh, arc for it would be to take him back to Philly. So it's mm-hmm. uh, uh, Will and maybe Carlton uh, as parents, and circumstances have led them to have to return to Philadelphia and raise their uh, children. Uh, who are accustomed to affluence and wealth in sort of the environment where um, they pick up Weebay on the on the wire, mm-hmm. right? When they like go to Philly to arrest him, and so it's the inverse of the fish out of water story, um, and sort of a I guess this is more of the conventional gritty reboot uh, pitch. Well, I think if uh, Will Smith makes a few more Gemini mans, he might be ready to sign on for that project. So uh, that one, that one, it I could find... be a Carlton only. Uh, Alfonso sure. Ribeiro, very available. He's doing commercials now, right? Yeah, like he's he's available. Yeah, I, I I think that that could that could work. It, it reminds me a little bit about how uh, Ice Cube would tell stories about you know when obviously very rich by the time he had uh, his kids were older and he would go and you know drop them off in the hood because they were growing up in such a privileged lifestyle. So you know, kind of. Mm-hmm. Taking mm-hmm. the privilege and then going back to back to uh, where you started, as opposed to what Fresh Prince, like you said, does the opposite of that. 
Yeah, I, I think that is very important, um, particularly today when people only want to sort of look at the gilded surface of things and, and we get this sort of social media reality of, of you know, a, a press release versions of lives uh, to see the origins uh, of people who, who rise up like that. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that's I one would, of my favorite scenes on uh, my, Mad Men when he shows Sally his house. Yeah, I, I think my note on that would that I, would be especially if Will Smith and Alfonso Ribeiro were in it. And they were both raising kids. I would like to see them uh, definitely have uh, girls uh, that they were raising because I think that would be interesting. Uh, oh, that would they, be great. You yeah. need both, uh, maybe a boy and a girl, so you could get both perspectives in there. But yeah, all right. Well, Nathan, you're taking up all my. That's why you're money. the development. Executive. That's right. That's right. And this is my, right, my last one. The film. All right, let's hear it. Uh, gritty gangster pick. Um, it is about a kid named Brett trying to steal a briefcase from a gangster in Los Angeles. Uh, and it's everything that leads up to that dumb kid in Pulp Fiction uh, getting shot by Sam Jackson. <laughs> nice. Right? Like, I've, what's that story? Uh, I'm very curious uh, about the, you know, white boys in over their head uh, aspect of that. I would totally watch it. I think there's interesting racial themes that you could play with from them trying to rob a black guy. Um and I, I think we could make it. Yeah, I think uh, so. Would the movie end when Brett gets shot in the head? I think so. Yeah, or maybe you play it sort of uh, a little uh, less overtly grim, and it's like he thinks he gets away with it. Well, you could but also we do, know what happens. Sure, or you could just do what Pulp Fiction did, which is tell the story non-linearly. So you have him die in the oh, middle of yeah. it, and then come back with him walking out of the diner at the end. I mean, it doesn't have to be the diner, but where they get the burgers uh, for that scene mm-hmm. would actually mm-hmm. be a perfect mm-hmm. uh, kind of mirroring of Pulp Fiction. There you Fiction. go. This is the magic of the development uh, uh, room. I just so if you are a listener or a uh, powerful executive who <laughs> is uh, interested in these ideas and has money, uh, contact us. We would ha- be happy to uh, exchange these ideas for money. Yeah, I look forward um, to doing it again soon with some with some other ideas, and maybe we'll switch roles and have you be the development executive. I have to tell you that the, uh, the it's very comfortable over here in this seat. I bet the. Um, uh, don't get too comfortable. Those those jobs are not uh, <laughs> very stable, is my understanding. Um, <laughs> all right, so we're going to come back uh, with what is becoming a customary sort of tonal shift. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about grief and stuff. Um, and then uh, Maloney's going to take over here. Uh, so we will be right back. So this past year has been uh, a whirlwind for me. I'm an emotional roller coaster, to say the least, uh, with a lot more dips in it than ups. Um, my dad passed away uh, on August 1st, and he got started to get very ill right around the turn of this calendar year. Um, I remember I called him on his birthday in January, and it was the first time when I heard his voice that I was like, oh, wow, he's sick. And then by March, he was hospitalized for the first time. He had a failed liver. And um, so the summer became all about one. He, he actually moved a little bit more close to me. So I was able to spend some more time with him, which was lovely, uh, especially given uh, hindsight now. Um, but it was all about whether he could get a liver transplant or not. And as you might guess from the way the story turned out, he was not able to. So he passed uh, in August. Did- 
Did you know in January that he was sick at all? Or was it you heard his voice and that was... My dad is sort of famous for not talking about any... uh, Especially uh, conversationally, talking about issues of any sort of weight. Like, he he likes to talk, but he kind of likes to small talk, you know, talk about sports, talk about what's Mm -hmm. going on and Mm -hmm. things like that. So he's famously sort of always downplayed any medical issues. It was clear... He was not a healthy man. Like he was overweight, and, and sure. he he was increasingly isolated. He had this job. He bought this uh, his pride and joy, this like log cabin out in the woods in Placerville, Gold Country, on your way up to Tahoe in Northern California. And he literally drove three hours round trip to work every day um, in his truck. Jesus. And, and he was also a workaholic. So he really he just spent sure. more and more time by himself or working or driving to and from work. Um, and so, you know, we were very close when I was a kid, but he, he and I, we probably only saw each other a couple of times a year in person. And then we would talk sporadically mm-hmm. on the phone. But it was he started to get sick around Thanksgiving and it wasn't, it was around January, like I said, when I called him on his birthday, where it was like clear, like, it's not just that he's, uh, his health is bad. There's like, there's, there are issues here that if they're not resolved, we're in big trouble here. Um, and sure. one of the most sobering moments in my life, honestly, was when he first got hospitalized in March. I, my aunt prepared me for this, his sister, who was his main caretaker during this whole time. And she, she was amazing through all this, but um, she warned me that when I went into the hospital room to see him, that I, I was, it was going to be a stark reality because he, he looked so different and, you know, his, his face was incredibly gaunt and, uh, you know, he, mm-hmm. he just, he was almost unrecognizable other than, you know, like when we actually would talk and, and, uh, his, you know, mannerisms and everything of course were still there, but he, he was in physical form was just so deteriorated and it never really got much better than that. Um, he, that's been a, um, a hard part of my mom with cancer and then post cancer is uh, physically she's different, man. She shakes or she's she's smaller and her voice is clearly different. And yep. it's so um hard to it's aging right in and deterioration like in your face. Yeah. Uh, it's really, really hard to to process and to to be around honestly and i i know that you did a lot for him and, and i really commend you for that and think yeah that's, well you you were very helpful very actually because we had a discussion because you had gone through the situation with your mom having cancer and we you and i you know already in therapy it was learning or trying to learn a lot about boundaries and, and beating this sort of codependent patterns that i had and so this gave me a really interesting opportunity to find that place where i was comfortable both Here's how much I'm willing to show up because, you know, in all in mm-hmm. all uh, honesty, my dad is incredibly loving parent, but he was he, he always was a little emotionally absent. Like he was not a very present parent a lot of the time, especially just uh, emotional things were not his thing. And he happened to ha- bear sure. a very sensitive ch- uh, boy uh, that had a lot of emotional needs that he was not particularly well equipped equipped to serve. But we had this conversation when he got sick of just. I needed to find that boundary between wanting to show up a certain amount, but also not getting completely sucked into where taking care of him became my entire life because I had a lot of else going on in my life that I couldn't abandon. And quite frankly, from my own perspective of sort of uh, honoring myself, I, I wanted to show up for him, but not so much in, in the same way that, you know, there was a limit to the ability he was able to show up for me. I didn't want to sort of abandon myself to just make it all about him either. So I, th- I think... 
the thing I'm most proud of in going through this difficult journey of, you know, I would basically be down there once or twice a week and spend time with them either at the hospital or mm-hmm. at my aunt's house. Um, but finding that balance, but where I could really uh, be sitting in my own integrity of showing up because I wanted to, not out of a sense of obligation, mm-hmm. but also not mm-hmm. letting it go further where I would have started to resent either my dad or my aunt or whoever t- yep. for making me be there. Well, you, I think, put yourself first. Um, and, and man, it's an unfortunate reality that a, a sick person will take all of your energy if you have it to give. Um, and not through malicious intent, but just through no. that's how needy people become. Um, and you've got to focus on, on yourself, I think, particularly where you are right now. Uh, you know, when my mom was sick, I wasn't there for her the way she wanted me to be. And I wasn't there for her the way maybe they needed me to be. Uh, but it's also when I did extraordinary personal growth and when I met my wife and when, you know, like mm-hmm. I-, I had things I had to do so that I wouldn't die. Uh, and I think you did too. And I think the point that like, you know, there, not to get like, there's some balance sheet where it all adds up, but you know, there were times growing up when he wasn't there for you. Right. And, and for you to drop everything and be there for him is a little bit, I think unfair. And, and I'm really proud of how you handled it. Yeah. Um, and he, he, you know, I'll talk about this a little bit later. I'm going to end the show with reading sort of a, a, an edited version of the eulogy I read at his memorial. But Well, it's a eulogy for the podcast. You you made like an interactive thing and a, yeah. or, or a multimedia thing rather. And I think it's really cool and, and fits the show. Uh, and so we're going to end with that this week. Yeah. And just, but just um, going back to your earlier point about, you know, seeing your mom look different, talk different. And obviously I went through this with my dad too, but when you deal with loss in your life, um, you know, when your grandparents die, uh, which were highly affecting to me because I was close to my grandparents, but when you are born, they are old. So when they die, it doesn't have the same kind of effect that a parent getting sick or passing away does because sure. the thing that happens there is, one, they're your you know primary caretaker, first position there, you've been with them your whole life. But also, um, especially when it's happening in the middle of your own life, it makes you face your own mortality in a way that you probably never have before. I know that was the case for me. Sure. And especially as we're approaching 40. Um, my experience with my grandparents is a little different because my grandparents on my father's side are only 10 years older than my mom. Mm. Um, so they turned 80 this year and she turned 70. So they were still young and fairly vivacious for me. Uh, uh, growing up, but it's it's interesting that you know you have have literally lost your dad, and I have uh, uh, figuratively lost mine. So I I have you know between getting married and having a kid and and a career, there have been milestones that I've achieved and moments where my dad had the opportunity to emotionally show up and be available and be an adult. Uh, and he has blown them time and time again and chosen to be a childish, self-centered uh, asshole. Yeah. Uh, and I have had to make the decision now that this person isn't welcome um, in in my life anymore. And it's been tough. Uh, but what I've also come to recognize is that he really hasn't. I told myself the same thing, that he was there when I grew up. But then I did the math, man. And uh, for me, there are 168, well, for everybody, there's 168 hours in the week. I maybe saw my dad in a good week for 30 of them. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe 40 if I spent that weekend at his house one time a month. Right. But so let's say 30 hours a week. I mean, that's not even a fifth of the time. Right. That's not even 20 percent of my life. He he wasn't there for these things. So part of what I'm actually grieving is the fantasy of who I thought this person was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if I know you you in, in versions of the eulogy, you talk to me about sort of compare your dad the myth of him versus the reality of him. Is that something you've felt at all? Or are you, where are you, I guess, in processing your relationship now? Yeah, it's funny. Three we, months after his death. We, we always joke that we report cord this podcast on Tuesday afternoons when after both of us have therapy on Tuesday mornings. And um, I had therapy this morning. And I actually came to this, a bit of an epiphany around this very subject and talking about it. So uh, I, I have been doing a lot of that same soul searching that you're talking about, coming to a slightly different conclusion because obviously we have different relationships with our fathers. But the thing sure. uh, it, that really hit me was last night in preparing the uh, version of the eulogy that I was going to read on the podcast, I was going through uh, these old Facebook posts because I was trying to find the specific one that I wanted to include this anecdote in my um, eulogy that I, I knew had been I'd written a brief thing about on a Facebook post. And, but I also knew that it was from back in like 2015. So many years ago. So I had to go, you know, scroll down my Facebook feed for quite a ways. And, you know, my dad in a similar way, at least, uh, hours wise as a kid, he was a weekend dad. You know, my mom was my primary Mm -hmm. caregiver. My parents were never married. Uh, they were always luckily the, the nice thing that I had going for me is that they always remain good friends. And in fact, so, so good friends that on a few occasions when we were between houses, because my mom was moving from one nanny job to another, we'd actually live with my dad. That's how good of friends that how well they got along. They could cohabitate together. Um, quick, quick, hold on. Quick question. Is your yeah. brother your dad's kid or your mom's kid? He's, he's my stepbrother. So he's my stepdad's kid. Um, ah, okay. which we can talk okay. more about it on another show, just like family okay. dynamics. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just wanted to get that uh, yeah. family tree. Yeah. Okay. So I'm my my two biological parents. Uh, they they are my I'm their only child. Um, and so got it. With that though, my while I only saw my dad on the weekends, we did have this really bonded relationship when I was a kid because he was my best buddy, and you know we went to sporting events together and whatnot. But anyway, going back to the looking at the Facebook feed, I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and looking at all these posts. And fuck Nathan, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. My dad was the first comment on 90% of my posts because he wanted so badly mm. to connect with me, you know, and Facebook uh, later, in, mm. you know, later in, in life, we didn't talk a lot. And, you know, his posts, especially at the time when I put myself in the, the place when those comments would pop up, he, he always kind of, it was always nostalgic. It was always about memories from us when we were spending more time together as a kid or whatever. And, and a lot of times, they were sweet, but they didn't quite like connect to me in the way it was like, he's trying to make it about this where I'm in this different place or whatever. But sure. seeing the totality of that feed and just him being like the first comment in like every post, it was just like, God, this man, he loved me so much. And he was trying his, in the only way he knew how to connect with me. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. The, the kind of point I got to in therapy today was like, and I realized this too, in spending time with him uh, over these last six months before he passed away we just, we connect in different ways and that's okay. But it, it, it certainly sure. left a deficit in me because I had larger emotional needs than he had the capacity to service. But he still tried in his own way to show up in the way that he could. Um, and so did I. And it didn't always mesh together because of us being wired very differently. But, uh, you know, to quote the old Woody Allen what? quote, you know, half of life is just showing up. 
Sure, and and I think part of of it is um, uh, it's a cheesy book, but love languages. Yeah, right, yep. and mm-hmm. and understanding like ways that it was appropriate to show affection for one another. It's not really easy to do, um, between men. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, were you ever um, uh, just going back a little bit to last week? Like you were never like afraid of him, right? Not in any like no. My dad uh, way other than you know yeah, kids my, are sometimes afraid of their dads. My ma- my dad was this really interesting dichotomy because on the one hand, uh, he spent all of his free time. He was a rugby player, like really active, mm-hmm. competitive rugby player, which is as brutal a sport as you can play. Basically, football without pads. Um, he in his earlier years was uh, he raced motocross, like big motorcycle guy and you know gearhead kind of thing. So he had all these sort of classic. Um, machismo kind of uh, pastimes, but he was the gentlest sure. man. Like, the one comment that just came up again and again at the memorial where I was seeing all of his rugby friends or coworkers or family members that I had not seen in a very long time, everyone basically to a man was just commenting on just like what a gentle soul he was. So yeah, he, there was never any menace with him, even though he was a, had a lot of physicality to his his presence. He was sort of a the strong, sure. silent type, I guess you could say, to use a cliche. Sure. By contrast, I was terrified of my dad. So I, you know, you you talked to me about uh, the the song, uh, the Dire Straits song you picked for the video montage you made of being one of the only songs you guys could agree on. Like, I didn't even fight my dad because I was too afraid. Uh, and so the result is now, while I certainly intellectually am capable of giving him the same type of, of compassion and and empathy you're you're giving for your dad which i I think is admirable and and very important i also have a pocket full of fuck yous Mm -hmm. you know that i cannot not say right now uh and so (laughs) it is uh using facebook as the sort of litmus test i i wrote this blog when i was uh we were expecting and and it's all about dealing with my albinism which is something my father has never ever acknowledged or talked about and Man, he deleted me as a friend Ugh. rather than continue to have these blogs in his feed, which you can just mute, uh, you know. But so it's it's when I show up as who I am, he doesn't want anything to do with me. So, I, you know, well, I just oh, well, it's it's his loss. Yeah, no, but I, I just want to acknowledge like that, that feeling that that created in me like that, that, that. Even though you've you know gotten to the point where you've more accepting of it, but that that's really that's really hard and really painful thing to hear about one of my good friends. I think one of the things about having conversations like this for us is that you know you activate your empathy when you're talking to a good friend, and so you at least for sure. me, I don't know if you approach conversations similarly, but you know I'm always trying to think about like the parallels with my life so I can access that empathy. Like this is what they you know are close as I can come to. This must be what it feels like to be in their shoes or Mm -hmm. whatnot. But uh, sometimes these conversations with our good friends where there are these fundamental differences in dynamics or uh, relationships with ourselves or other people, you hit that ceiling of like, I can't, I can't empathize with that because I don't know what that would like. So all I can really do is just hold space and just, you know, acknowledge like that. That's really hard. Sure. Sure. But I think that maybe not for your dad, but I'd be willing to bet you have some relationships where you bit your tongue. Oh, of course. Uh, yes. And and can certainly relate to that. I mean, there's nothing better to create resentment than not expressing your feelings. I'm very good at resentment, um, Nathan. And, yes. Yeah. And I, I grew in terms of with my dad, it was not safe uh, to 
talk about your feelings at all. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm hopeful that, that people will grow and, and I will grow and I'll get to a place where I'm more at peace with it. And, and that pocket full of fuck yous gets to be a pocket full of go fuck yourselves and down to <laughs> screw yous and down to like, all right, let's have dinner, you know. Um, but there's also, you know, in therapy and stuff, there's also the uncovering of, of hard truths. Um, and, and I get mad all over again, you know? Yeah. Uh, and some people you, that you, recognize. for your own health, need to walk away from. Like you've, you've, sounds like you've, you've had to create. Yeah. Exactly numbers. right. Exactly right. At the, at the end of the day, I can, <laughs> this is so shitty. I, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, man, like by every metric, the less I talk to him, the better my life is. And I'm, I, I don't like that that is true. Um, I want it not to be true, but I also live and breathe. Um, yeah, and I think so, that's that's what we're trying to get to here is the place of accepting a reality rather than the fantasy, right? And sometimes that reality that you have to swallow is is not easy. And in your case, in, in both of our cases, we've lost our father just in very different ways. Yeah, and, and so I'm excited to, um, I'm going to bow out here and let you take over um, talking about your dad and, and doing the, um, the mixed media thing. Uh, and we'll sort of get into this a little bit more next week when we talk about sports uh projects and and stuff like that all right well, um, I, I can't wait till next week uh, this is, continues to be a, a good time yeah this is the highlight of my week man all right um, i love you buddy. All right, i look forward to listening to the eulogy i love you too man uh i will talk to you later all right see you in the episode right, bye-bye So as I mentioned in the previous segment, uh, my dad passed away uh, on August 1st. We actually waited a little while to have his memorial. Um, it was held on September 28th, uh, a few about a month ago now. And uh, I read his eulogy to uh, a great crowd of his rugby friends, family members, co-workers. It was a big turnout at his best friend's house, and it was, it was a, a really cathartic and, and really lovely affair because it really honored him. And the only thought that I had pretty much throughout was just how much he would have loved being there with all these great people celebrating, maybe not enjoying celebrating him so much, but uh, all of his favorite people being in one place together. So uh, what I've done here is I've kind of modified it a little bit for the podcast audience and thought I would share it with you guys to uh, yeah, share a very important part of myself uh, celebrating my dad. When I was a kid, Saturdays in the fall were all about spending time with my dad. He'd pick me up in a Chevy Blazer or his Volvo sedan, and off we'd go to a rugby tournament or a Stanford football game. And it was great. It really was. I mean, sure, most of the time we were surrounded by his rugby teammates, the majority of whom were grade A ass clowns, but there always came a point in the day when my dad would grab a ball and the two of us would play catch. And it was everything I wanted in the world. Everyone else faded away, and it was just me and him. And every time that ball hit my hands, it was this beautiful reminder that we were connected. Outside of sports, the other thing that we always connected over was movies. Now, our taste wasn't always aligned because he loved science fiction and old westerns, and I liked more modern dramas and comedies. But every so often, a movie like Field of Dreams or Jurassic Park would come along and hit that sweet spot right between us. After he died, the movie I couldn't seem to get out of my head was No Country for Old Men because, in a way, it's the perfect blend of both of us and what we loved. 
If you've seen the movie, it ends with Tommy Lee Jones giving a speech about two dreams he's had about his dead father. And ever since he got sick, my dad's been showing up in my dreams damn near every night. So I've been thinking about that speech a lot. Anyway, the first one I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere and so he'd give me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in the older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. He rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, just rode on past. And he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. There's a Native American belief that before we're born, we choose our parents because they're uniquely qualified to teach us the lessons that we're meant to learn in this lifetime. And to that I say, you know, I'm not sure I needed to learn that goddamn much about the structural integrity of bridges, but hey, the universe works in mysterious ways, right? My dad was an engineer to his absolute core. I mean, he did everything methodically. He explained things in painstaking detail. He checked and double-checked plans for a living and never in recorded human history has anyone ever taken longer to eat a fucking meal. Oh my God. I've taken edibles that made the mere idea of putting a fork in my mouth too overwhelming to bear, and even in that condition, I could still finish an omelet faster than my father. But you have to give him credit, because he wasn't a hypocrite. That methodical nature that he took to his work also made him uncommonly patient and kind and forgiving. I remember when I was 13, he and I went to the driving range together, and he had bought this brand new top-of-the-line driver that probably cost him close to $300. And he was like a kid on Christmas morning, just smiling from ear to ear. He was so goddamn proud of that thing. And after he hit a few balls, I asked him if I could try it out. And because he was him, he handed it over without hesitation. So I take the driver, I tee up a ball, and on my first swing, whap! I catch a little too much of the ground, and the club head snaps right off the shaft and goes flying out into the grass. And I turn to him as sheepishly as I probably have in my entire life, and his jaw's about on the ground. But he didn't get mad. He didn't even raise his voice. He saw that I felt worse about it than he did, and he told me not to worry about it. And he actually meant it. I mean, the heart that guy had was incredible. As I got older, my dad and I spent less and less time together. It was a combination of me moving further away, my becoming a teenager, and honestly, my frustration with the fact that it felt harder and harder to connect with him in the way that I wanted. The summer after I turned 16, he invited me on a road trip to South Dakota for my great-grandmother's 90th birthday party. Every teenager's dream vacation, right? But I end up going because, well, I don't really have a choice in the matter. But I really mail it in. I mean, that drive is a little over 3,000 miles round trip, and I spent 95% of it either asleep in the passenger seat or worse, pretending to be asleep so I wouldn't have to make small talk with my dad. But a couple of things saved us. 
The first was the Dire Straits album, Brothers in Arms, which was one of like three tapes we had with us on the trip that we both liked. We wore that fucking tape out, man. I mean, it basically played on a loop in the car. And then the second was David Letterman, because at the end of every night, after a long day of driving, we check into a crappy roadside motel, lie on our parallel beds, and watch the late show together. All right, here we go. Top 10 things that sound creepy when said by John Malkovich. Number 10. Does this look infected to you? In that moment, when we both start laughing at the same joke at the same time, I'd realize we were still connected. In the 20 years or so since that trip, it often felt like my dad and I were chasing moments like that. But honestly, they became fewer and far between. He wasn't always the easiest guy to reach, and we were just wired differently. And so, a lot of guilt built up on both sides. We talk around the disconnect that we both felt, but never really addressed it directly. And then he got sick. In a strange twist of fate, I began spending many of my Saturdays back at Stanford with my dad, but this time around, we were in the hospital, not at the football stadium. I was really hoping that our time together would mend our relationship. If you've ever read the book Tuesdays with Maury, I was hoping for my Tuesdays with Maury moment, that epiphany, you know, that profound perspective you can only get from someone facing the end of their life. And I was actually there at his bedside the first time the doctor came in and intimated that a liver transplant wouldn't be possible. Selfishly, I wanted him to open up about how he was feeling, what it all meant. But after I checked in with him to make sure he understood what the doctor was saying, all he said was, well, that's show business. See, wanting to have a raw emotional conversation with my dad was like trying to take a cat for a walk. The cat's looking at you like, what the hell are we doing here, man? And you're pretty much wondering the same thing. But you know what? In the weeks that followed, I got my epiphany, albeit much more subtly and silently than I'd imagined it. I was sitting at his bedside, and we were watching a baseball game together. And I finally realized that the most important part of any connection is just showing up and being there together. When I think about my dad, it's almost impossible not to think about this photo of us from when I was little. I have it up on the wall in my bedroom, and he had it up at his desk at work. For us, at least, it's this iconic shot that sums up our bond. A few years ago, I tried my hand at writing a novel, and while it didn't start out this way, the more I wrote, the more the book became about my relationship with my dad, both the fond memories I had of us, but also the absence I often felt as I grew older. And so eventually this picture popped into my head and inspired a passage in the book. I thought I'd share it with you. Almost inevitably, the last thing to pass through his head before he fell asleep each night was a picture of him and his father. The image came courtesy of an old photograph that the boy had tucked away in the bottom drawer of his desk. In it, he was four years old and sat perched atop his dad's shoulders, the two of them decked out in nearly identical blue-striped rugby jerseys. The boy hadn't looked at the photo in a very long time, but on this night, the rendering in his mind's eye was particularly vivid. His dad was smiling, and so was he, and because of their matching outfits, it was hard to say for certain where one ended and the other began. I actually wrote that right around the time I saw my dad at the funeral of one of his best friends. So the next morning I sent it to him, and a little while later he emailed me back. He wrote, Now you've gone and made me cry, but thanks. I needed that. I think of you daily. Love, Dad. And as I read this, I start to cry too, but it's okay, because we were connected. I love you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> 